Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So what question do you have for me today? Or maybe I'll let you answer some of it. Do we have one of our listener questions that we can answer? You mean we should stop just talking about how we want to to collect listener questions and we should actually answer one? Yeah, I thought it'd be about time we answer one. Great idea. Here's a question from a listener. How do you dig yourself out of the hole or pit that's so easy to fall into every now and then? Mm. Hmm. Do you want to dive in first, Sherry? Mm, I think I'm going to think about it a little bit. You're more off the cuff. Well, you could say I'm off the cuff, but I also wrote the question down like a day ago, and I have thought about it for a while. So um, You're slightly prepared. Yeah, and and we love your initial reactions, but so I'll just, I'll, I'll give a couple of points while you're thinking. So how do you dig yourself out of the pit? that you fall into. I'm here to tell you, this is probably not the news people want to hear. We are almost, next month we'll be six years sober, and we still fall into the pit sometimes. It's not as often. I kind of thought about it, and I think it's every five or six months now, you and I have what a lot of people will describe as an emotional relapse. No, No alcohol involved, but something will be triggering, and we have a hard time. And that used to be much more often. When I was drinking, it was once a month. And then when I was in early sobriety, it was still once a month. Or maybe even more often in early sobriety. And then, you know, eventually it started to space out. But I think one of the the hard hardest parts of this for, for me was I would get to the point where I was like, okay, that's over. That's never going to happen again. <clears throat> because a couple of months would go by. And now I realize... Maybe we'll someday reach the point where it'll never happen again, but we're not there, and I don't know if we'll reach that point. So I guess the the point I'm trying to make there is there is no finish line when it comes to emotional recovery, and this highlights something that we've been talking a lot about in our Echoes of Recovery group and that you'll hear us talk more about on the podcast, that the trauma that's associated with experiencing alcoholism, either as the drinker or certainly 100% as the spouse of a drinker, is serious, capital T trauma. And it should not be, it should not take a back seat to other forms of trauma. It It's big time. And again, we're not going to get deep into that right now. But the fact that we're six years sober and we still every five or six months have a, an emotional relapse is nothing to be ashamed of i it's just kind of part of it there is no there's no finish line for this it's just continual work and i believe <clears throat> my voice cracked there i believe that our relationship is worth the effort and that you are worth the effort and certainly that our kids are worth the effort so you know would it be nice if there was just you could do 12 steps and cross it off your list and be like there we're done forever that would be awesome, but that's not reality. So, and that was not a shot at the 12 steps. I'm just saying there's no finish line. So, that's that's my take. I think we uh we just keep going and try to stay out of the pit as much as possible. But as far as how you get out of it, what are your thoughts 
What are your thoughts on that, Sherry? I think I should have gone first. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you read the question again? <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm thinking about it. Seriously. How do you dig yourself out of the hole or pit? Okay. It's so easy to fall into every now and then. Okay, so it is easy to fall into it because it's really easy to go back into bad habits and old habits. Um, I think... I th- you mentioned, like, you know, you when you go back in the pit, you always think, oh, gosh, this is the worst feeling ever. And I mean, and you know, and those are the things that we've discussed. You're like, I've never felt this bad. And I, you know, I being the sober partner, I'm like, oh, okay, I've heard that, like, many times when you've been drinking. Right. You know, so I wonder, like, where it is. But it feels worse when you are sober because you're all 100% there. Um, I think for me... Well, and, and you think you're making progress. So yeah. So you're like, why, why am I back here? This is awful. Then maybe this is me being a realist. Maybe this is me, like, seeing, you know, um, arguments in relationships, whether it was with my mom and my dad, who were, they were divorced, but they still argued that I saw, and then my mom and my stepdad had some arguments. I don't know if it's... I grew up thinking that, yes, people have arguments. You know, you can't be in a intimate, close relationship without fueling each other every once in a while. You're right, it is about like every six months, there's always something that's kind of around that event, some sort of big change, and for me, it's always triggering. There are two things that I've isolated that are big triggers. How I get out of it a little bit quicker, sometimes it's easier than most, Um, but for me, I think that I know it's going to be better because you're not going to just continue to drink. Right? Right. You're not going to like have a day where you're like, I can't go into the bakery and work, you know, because I'm drinking or I can't do my job or I, so for me, it's just knowing that we've made so much progress and there's so much things, so many things better that it makes it easier for me to get out of the pit quicker. And I don't feel like I fall as deep all the time. Now, if it's something that's an emotional relapse and it's extended for over many days, like if it's a one or two day sort of temptuous, you know, connection, that's much easier to recover from. If it's multiple days or, or a week or so, that's harder and I can go further and deeper in. But knowing, and ironically, it seems optimistic and I'm not normally that person, I know that it's not as bad as it used to be in our relationship and so much is better. So finding our way back there is a little easier. That's such an interesting perspective because as the drinker, when we would get in the pit or even, you know, there were times certainly when I was in the pit and you weren't, when you were detached, you weren't in there with me. In any case, as the drinker, when I was actively drinking, I had the relief of alcohol So maybe, you know, drinking for the first couple of days of being in a really, really, really bad place would extend the duration of being in the pit, but it, and and it never, you know, it never worked. It was never a solution. I don't mean to, to play it that way, but it did provide some relief. Because you got a little bit of escape from those feelings, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just completely numbed out. Whereas now when we get in the pit, I have nothing. I have nothing. And um, so in a way, I mean, everything you said is right. It, the duration of being in the pit lasts less time. There's more, you know, of a belief that we're going to get out and it's going to be okay and the relationship's stronger. All that's there. 
But I don't have that 48 hours of, I'm just going to drink my face off and fuck you and, um, you know, I'll sulk and hide. I don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. So our perspectives on the pit in long-term sobriety is different. And I'd never realized that until we just talked about it. And I think when we were in it and you were drinking, I, um, I, I wouldn't say that I was detached very early on. No. Like, and I think that I, I was good at shoving it down. So I, and I used escapism a little bit, those sort of things. And I had ways that I could invest my time and interest and did things with the kids and clean the house and like all these like hands-on distractions. Yeah, it's funny. I talk about drinking for a couple of days. I would indulge when I would just eat anything I want. Chips and ice cream. You would do the opposite. So I would drink and chips and ice cream. You would do the opposite. You would purge. Not purge. That means you're throwing up, right? You would abstain. Yeah. You like, you know, we'd eat a meal and I'd look over and you wouldn't have touched your food on your plate. Yeah. And so you, and you would clean and you would... You would do anything but sit and think about it, while I did nothing but sit and think about it. Yeah, and I would look at you like, you groveling piece of shit. And I would Thanks look at you like... Thanks for leaving all of the responsibility of the kids on me, and the house, and everything else. And I would look at you like, isn't this important enough that you can take five minutes to think about it? You're No, you're going a million miles an hour like always. Mm-hmm. Really interesting, the different perspectives. Well, I think it's interesting anyway. As far as the timing, that was part of the listener's question... You know, I don't know. It it takes a week plus to get out of the pit. It there you know, and there's a there's a cycle to it. For whatever reason we're in there, there's still some probably some denial going on for the first couple of days. And then there's you know, a reckoning with, oh my god, you know, I've I've gotta look at this differently or I've gotta change the way I'm behaving or the way I'm thinking or something like that from one or both of us. And then there's certainly some period of sorrow. Uh, and then, you know, you lick your wounds long enough and you, you move on. Is that an accurate, fair description? Do you think? Yeah, I think for me though, I, I don't stay in the, in the pit pit as long. I might be like dang, like sitting on the edge some and in a dark place. Um, but less so now for days. Like it might be a few hours where I'm really, really bad. And then, you know, like 24 hours, I'm really bad. And then it's just gloomy and I'm highly emotional, you know, in those next few days as we're, I'm processing the feelings and, and instead of pushing it down and being distracted. Well, this listener question is timely. And we're going to transition from this question into our main topic for the day, but they're related. So you won't get whiplash from the transition. But before we do that, I do just want to encourage everyone. um, We've gotten a bunch of these listener questions. A lot of them are very similar. So we're able to take, you know, several things that people have sent in and combine them and say, here is the question. Mm -hmm. So the chances of your question being addressed on a podcast episode are very high. Uh, So we just encourage people to send those in. You can email your questions to matt at soberandunashamed.com and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So today, the the topic that we're going to talk about, again, related to that listener questions, 
are is our different reactions to stress. And I think this really highlights the importance of self-esteem for both sides of the equation, both the drinker in recovery and the spouse in recovery, the loved one in recovery. <clears throat> and it applies to loved ones who are no longer with the drinker, but are also in recovery. So this isn't relationship recovery specific. This is anyone who's been exposed to an alcoholic relationship. Self-esteem is, you know, we've been, you and I have been saying it for, I don't know, a couple of years now. It, I think it's the single most important factor in recovery and regaining healthy perspective is to feel good about yourself. Now, when we are in stressful situations, and here we are, the first week of December, you know, after the Thanksgiving holiday, leading into the, the end of the year holidays, that there is, from a calendar perspective, probably no more stressful time of the year, although May, when the kids get out of school, we have societally self-imposed all kinds of crazy stress on ourselves, but I won't get into that right now. But from a calendar perspective, this is a pretty stressful time of year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you've got on top of just the general stuff, maybe something is stressful at work or something is stressful with the family, it can certainly put us over the top. You and I both have the habit of, and I think this is probably common with our listeners, when it gets stressful, we roll up our sleeves and we get after the work. There, That, that has never been an issue. We've never been kind of crawl into the corner and hide when things are difficult and there's a lot to do. But what is different between the two of us is, you know, I'm an optimist and you are a self-described pessimist. This isn't me taking a shot at you. So when I talk about me being an optimist, when, when it's stressful and there's a lot to do or it's hard or it's something that we are unfamiliar with, I am confident that we will get it done. I am, let me be very clear about that word confident. I am not confident that it will be successful or that it'll be high quality or that it'll be something that we'll look back and be proud of. But I am definitely confident that it'll get done. I can think back from a work perspective to our days running the bakery and we needed to do some new promotion or get through some holiday season. There was never a question in my mind that we would get through it. We would, you know, turn off the lights at the end of whatever day and all the work would get done. I was often concerned that whatever we were trying to do would not land with the customers or be um, something that they really uh, received uh, positively. And that's that's the same with what we do now. There are times when putting out a weekly podcast in addition to all the other things we're doing the quality of the podcast suffers in my eyes mm -hmm. and we put it out and I'm like, ugh, that one is a stinky turd, but hopefully someone will get something out of it. <laughs> and I stress about that and I worry about it. But every Monday we hit the go button and the podcast episode gets published. And that goes with the writing that we do and just, just all of it. The, even within the, the, the groups that we run, Echoes of Recovery and Child Sobriety, Marriage Evolution, sometimes the topics that we're going to discuss are the writing prompts 
that we put out. Sometimes I'm super proud of them and excited to see what people, how they're going to respond. And sometimes I'm like, ugh, that's the best I could come up with. And it's not very good. So I think that's important. We, we, I am an optimist. I am confident that the work will get done. I'm not always confident that it'll be good or successful. You, again, not me taking a shot, but you are a pessimist. And can you talk a little bit about what that means when it's stressful and there's a lot to do? How does that make you feel? Mm. For me, when I know that I'm under the gun and there's stress and there's a time um, limit to it or an event, I have a tendency to internalize a lot of the and self-induced pressures that are really not there. Like, I make this expectation for myself when really I don't think others are going to notice some of these little things. And um, so I, I, they're self-imposed. And sometimes when I am, like, looking around, I'm, you know, say, for instance, like this last Thanksgiving, this one that we just went through, we hosted people. And this is our first time besides having family um, come for Thanksgiving. These were people in one of your writing groups that didn't have a real place to celebrate. So we hosted them. It was a great event. I loved it. We also had our two college students home. Kind of. Sort of. Um, and I th- I don't know. They were here I, like, on Thanksgiving. Yeah, they were here on Thanksgiving. I kind of had in my mind like, oh, this will happen and this will happen and then I'll like not have the mom guilt because I'm cleaning the house house and prepping for the Thanksgiving meal and shopping for it, I'll like, you know, the two kids that are here with us all the time, well, they'll go do something with friends. You know, I don't have to be entertaining. Well, that didn't happen because one kid's friend got sick, the other one was traveling, you know, not a whole lot of people around. So I had this guilt of mom guilt and then the worry about, is it going to get done? Is it going to be good enough? I mean, Hang on, don't don't skip over that for a second because this is an important point. And it's what's different between me and you. One of the many things that's different between me and you. When the kids are off school, I think that's enough celebratory awesomeness for that's them. That's enough for you them. You don't have to go to school there. <laughs> you can you can read. You can... I mean, we do limit their electronic time. You can stare at the wall. I don't give a shit. <laughs> You're off school. I got work you. to do. <laughs> you, on the other hand... You internalize that and you feel like when they're off school, you need to be entertaining them. I feel like sometimes I have to be Julie McCoy, the social director of The Love Boat. Yes. Yes. I feel like their social engagements are just as important to me as their emotional development, their physical development, their mental, you know. For me, that is part of parenting. And it's not that I'm still setting up play dates for our almost 13-year-old, but, you know, there is the driving aspect and, and like, trying to encourage. Because, I mean, when you and I were kids, we just went over to the neighbor's house. Nobody traveled hardly for Thanksgiving because all of my people, I grew up in a small town, they were all right there, you know, in the town. Nobody went anywhere for Thanksgiving because your whole family was pretty much there, you know. Well, and we, I think it's, it's fair to say that our 15-year-old, He has, on his bike, run into a parked car doing thousands of dollars worth of damage. And he has been at fault in a car and skateboarder accident as the skateboarder. Yes. We should say right away, no injuries to either one of those situations. 
But just sending him off, like, go find your friends and go have fun. Yeah, like, what kind of terrifying now? Yeah, Yeah, there is a little... And then he's going to be getting a car. Holy shit, what are we thinking? Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, let's not talk about that right now. You know, so there's that guilt. And then I get mad at you when I see you just in here, like, being okay. And I'm, like, trying to give them things to do. And then you... And this is this is how I interpret it. You're in your office doing your work. I'm like trying to manage them. Oh, can you help me with a little chores? And maybe we can go do this. And you know. And then they're arguing because they're brothers. And then you're like, why are you trying to get them organized for something to do? It's their job. They're almost 13 and almost 16. You know. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry for being a parent. That's what I think. That's another difference between me and you. You can recite their ages right off the top of your head. I have to sit and do math to figure out how old they are. So so it's that guilt and then the pressure that I put on myself of having things look nice. And it's not because it, it's maybe it's a habit or, you know, I grew up in a small house and my mom, we didn't have a whole lot. I mean, it was, she was a single working mom. My dad was an alcoholic, so it's not like he was flush with money. He was drinking in a way. And then... So she was like, well, whatever we have, I want it to look nice. And I've always kind of internalized that. I want it to look nice. And I want it to be homey. And I want to be comforting these people that, you know, didn't really have a whole lot of family to be with. And I wanted to be a good host. And I don't, I don't use recipes. I know that a lot of people might be shocked. I kind of just wing it. So there's that pressure of like, isn't going to turn out. And cooking, so I get snappy. So a, a lot of what you've said falls into a very traditional gender role categorization. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I heard on the radio yesterday, I'm not making this up, that there's some new study out about the different sections of our brains that get turned on by different events. And there's actually a section of our brain that is more highly related to nurturing that gets turned on when you have children. And it, it happens for the male if the male is the primary caregiver, but it happens automatically for the female. It has to do with hormonal you know, changes that are part of childbirth. It happens automatically for the female. And from the moment that gets turned on, it never goes off for the rest of your life. So you become this nurturer and the things that you're talking about, like making sure they have something to do when they're off of school, and knowing what their ages are and <clears throat> all the things that you just described, those are, you know, automatically in you. And this isn't me being a sexist talking about it. There's like science behind this now, which I think is super cool. But also wanting our, our house small as it may be, wanting it to look nice. It, that's something that came from your childhood and from, from your mother. These are all natural things. The thing that separates you from me isn't that I will sit and work and try to get work done so that I can enjoy Thanksgiving and you will work on the house and preparing for our gifts, 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 yes, yes, so that we, you can enjoy Thanksgiving. What, what really separates us is that again, I'm an optimist about it and I know it's going to get done. I know your stuff's going to get done. I don't ever wonder like whether the meal will get done. But you do. You you doubt your own ability in the face of decades of pulling stuff off. And I think that's, this isn't me, like, I, 
again, I don't think that the experiences that you and I have are unique. That's why we talk about them publicly. I think there are a lot of people out there that after Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, have always pulled it off, but still in the face of getting ready for it, doubt their own ability and question Mm -hmm. whether it'll get done. And I don't want this to just be me putting words in your mouth, but this is one of the things that you said to me during Thanksgiving prep was that you were doubting your own ability to get it all done. Yeah. Well, and you know, and I thought, oh, we'll have some extra hands around the house a little bit. And then you ended up having, you know, you wanted to get your stuff done. So then you could be ready to help me on Wednesday for the most part. And I was like, well, that might be fucking too late. Yeah. You know, I got all this grocery shopping to do. Yeah. I had to go to like you know several different stores because I'm pressure again on myself. I like things from certain stores, so that's just that extra pressure I put on myself. And so when I put pressure on myself, and people aren't lining up with what I have been, I have never spoken a schedule to any one of you, and I just assume that you're just going to be under my command and taking orders. I get you know snappy, and then I'm. Then I feel like no one cares. So I kind of feel like, oh, this isn't important to anybody else. Or they don't see what I do. And I feel underappreciated sometimes, even though I know that that's silly. But that's how my mind just kind of goes there when I'm in stress like that. And then for me, just with the timing of that Thanksgiving holiday, I know that my next weekend, we at our church, or the, the first week of December, we kind of... Have this Advent festival, and I have the children's program. Because you're the children's. Because minister, I'm the director. So yeah, so you're not just you're not just like enjoying the children's exactly. program. Exactly, you're running the children's. So program. I and I realize, you know, we have a very great office manager, and she put something out, and I was like, oh shit, I was gonna back off of one of my duties for this festival that happens after the children's program. So, and we kind of had this rushed weekend after Thanksgiving. Because the kids that are in college needed to go back Sunday. We wanted to get the Christmas tree as a family. Because we do that as a family out in the woods. Cut it down. You know. So it's like rush, rush, rush already. Yeah. And it's just all these self-imposed stresses. But I never once even think about like talking to you about it. Which is ridiculous. Well, there's, there's that. You also... Again, not just trying to... feels like I'm just throwing darts at Sherry today. That's what this episode should be called. <laughs> but you you don't take compliments well. So I can notice how hard you're working and things that you're doing, and I can say something about that, and it, it does not land. And then in those moments, I'm like, thank you for that compliment. Now grab a fucking mop. You know, that's what I've been thinking probably. Yeah. But not always. Yeah. <clears throat> like I said, I do understand and appreciate but it has to be kind of a removed sort of situation so i want to explore this further and i'm honestly going to try to get your reaction to this and i have no idea what you're going to say this is uh just me being really curious and and trying to understand so you might not give me at all what i was thinking you were going to say and that might make this episode a disaster and then we will publish it and i'll go well that one sucked But hopefully not. So I want to talk about role models growing up because I think that has an impact on your pessimism and your doubt in your own ability to get things done, even 
with decades of success in getting things done, um, you still have, you know, have the ability sometimes to doubt yourself. So my role models growing up, the, the males in my family that I looked up to, my father, my grandfather, primarily, um, they always succeeded at, you know, certainly career related things. My grandfather was, he's got some very heroic stories of his experiences in World War II. My other grandfather who died when I was young, he's got, not the Congressional Medal of Honor, but he's got, I can't remember what, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember what he got, but he got some big time honor for his service in World War II as well. So there's just success stories all around, specifically the males in my family. My father had a very successful career always seemed on top of things from a you know family and parenting perspective but but here's the thing that I never noticed until you know now until the last few years there there is a lack of healthy communication what I would consider healthy communication in my family that I experienced growing up there was never a talking about feelings or emotions I never saw I mean I've seen my father cry a couple of times I think um and I've seen him mad lots of times, but but I've never seen any other displays of emotions. And there have never, you know, there's no, how's school? Good. How's work? Good. What's for dinner? Like that's the depth, right? And so at the time it felt normal and it felt fine and it even felt healthy. But I look back and I see that while my role models were career successful and seemed successful in all other ways, there was a lack, definitely a lack of healthy communication that is something that, you know, you and I are working hard to avoid, not only in our own relationship, but in our relationship with the kids. And every male role model that I had growing up, every single one of them used alcohol to help cope. Now, I'm not calling all of my family alcoholics, but, you know, ah, stressful day, going to have some drinks. Wind down. Wind down. Relax. Instead enjoy of going the game. on a walk or, you know. Yeah. Just alcohol was a coping mechanism. And so that's my growing up experience. Your growing up experience, your role models, I want you to react to this, but this is what I, I have seen. You witnessed some really challenging experiences. You witnessed divorce. Um, multiple divorces. Again, not trying to drag anyone through the mud here. You witnessed alcoholism. I witnessed drinking as a coping mechanism. You witnessed full-blown alcoholism. There's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- one of your experiences, when you and I met when you were in co- when, we w- when we were both in college, and you eventually got a culinary degree, which I think you should be way more proud of than you are, which is another aspect of this. I'm so proud of you for your culinary degree, and you're like, ah, it was a... It was a two-year technical college, blah, 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 blah. I don't understand why you blow that off. But you didn't finish. We were at Indiana University, and you didn't finish your four-year bachelor's degree at that time. And, you know, like that never would have entered my mind. I might have changed my major if the degree I was trying to get was too hard. But not finishing would have been unacceptable in my family. Mm Mm-hmm. You didn't finish, and that was acceptable in your family. Right. Again, I, I just feel awful like I'm throwing darts. I don't mean to. Well, and I think that's like, you know, ironically, my mom worked at Indiana University 
once when I was, before I was born and then after I was born. Like, she took a break, but I mean, like, so she worked at the university. She understood and appreciated the higher education, but she also grew up in a small town and we had a lot of places where a lot of people didn't go to college. Right. Like, I was the first, you know, like, my sister did not, um, you know, she did not, my dad did not. That's they an did important trades. factor. You were basically the first in your family to go to yeah, college, right? Yeah, and my nephews, who I'm only like 13 and 15 years older than, um, because of the age difference with my sister, like both of them finished college, you know, and that was that was a big deal for our family in a way. And I know it sounds kind of silly now, but there were just a lot of you know there was just a lot of like trade. Like we had lots of firefighters sure. and sheriffs in my family. Um, you know, Very I had a typical, couple uncles. Nothing wrong with it. Lots to be proud of, yeah. for sure. A couple uncles, and then there was military service. So it wasn't as high pressure to get a degree because there were lots of people that were successful and had good incomes and that were doing things that they were interested in doing. So we didn't. I didn't have that pressure to not finish. Right, right, right. Yeah, and again, that was that was not meant to be a shot. These I are didn't just take observations. It as a shot. You know, another one when you and I were really struggling and you started to seek help for dealing with my alcoholism and you you got my family involved, my parents, my sister got involved there at some point a little bit, and your mom and your sister, and that was that was the extent of it, right? I was very secretive and I insisted that you protect the secret and when you broke that secrecy, it was on a very limited basis. But a lot of the advice that you got was to leave me. And so all I'm, all I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is in your developmental stages and then into adulthood, you saw divorce, you saw alcoholism, you saw not finishing school, you saw, hey, just leave him, here's the advice we have to give you. So the fact that you internalize some neg- negativity and... And, you know, you doubt yourself, you doubt your ability to succeed in the face of stress and challenge. That's not surprising. That's the, I guess that's the only point that I'm trying to make. And I'm not suggesting that, that having confidence that I'll always get it done is particularly healthful, healthful. That's what partially made me an alcoholic, right? Knowing that I had to complete the task and that there was no you know, no alternative. And the way to deal with that stress was to drink it away. So I'm not, I'm not saying my way is better. I'm just trying to explain or understand where the negativity and the pessimism comes from. Also, I grew up in the Midwest and I don't know if any of you like listeners are from there. There is just kind of this like you don't know if stoic. any of our listeners are from the Midwest. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. But, like, there is this stoicism and this, like, yeah, it'll be fine sort of attitude. But I think there were a lot of unhappy women in my family that were my role models that had some challenges. Maybe one of my grandmothers, not quite so much. But that left them a little less than what, you know, a little less happy than they probably would have been. So I kind of grew up to be negative because I could hear negative things and feel negative tension about some things. I know you were just talking about your role models, like being successful and positive and, and ironically they're all male. And I'm thinking like, I loved both of my grandpas, but I went and I hung out with my grandmas, 
you know, I like went fishing with my papa, we'd camped, but most of the time I would be right there by, you know, the side of my grandma's. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I just felt safer there and it wasn't always the best, um, you know, the best role model because of some things that have happened, had happened in their lives. Well, I think a lot of our listeners will be able to relate to growing up in the Midwest and that kind of, uh, you know, background and childhood. I, I, I want to I get to where I'm kind of going with this. You know, we're kind of building the, the, this is how we grew up and this is the advice we received in the background. But what, this, what has resulted, and this ties into the listener question about getting into the pit... Sometimes you feel, and I, I chose this word carefully, and I'd like you to correct me if it's wrong, but I think this is the word that you've shared with me. Sometimes you feel unworthy. You struggle to accept compliments. You're often waiting for the other shoe to drop, whether for a long time that was me to start drinking again, or now that I don't think, I don't, I don't know, you don't, you don't, you're not sitting around waiting for me to relapse anymore, are you? No. But but you're still sometimes waiting for the bad thing to happen. And... Like you say, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you're like, this was really good, but... And then I'm like, oh, but what? Yeah. Yeah. But how do you feel about... I mean, I know for a fact that you really struggle <laughs> to accept compliments. And I think that stems from... You know, sometimes in your life, me and other people have complimented you in order to get something out of you. Again, something I know that our listeners will be able to relate to. I'm going to tell you, you're pretty. Now, come over here and take off your bra. Um, not that I, you know, I necessarily did that, but I think younger in your life, you, you, you know, that's that's how swarmy dudes operate, right? Sure. Okay. I don't so, remember that scenario, but... Well, not that specific scenario, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You Females often receive compliments because guys want something from them. But I feel like that could come from a lot of places, but mostly guys. Not just sex, but people compliment... Not just sex, no. People compliment... And maybe it's because I am a pessimist and I am distrustful in some ways. I feel like oftentimes people compliment to get something... But you can kind of, but you never know. You can't read through what the real compliment is versus a, a fake compliment. And I'd love to have that kind of radar to say, like, this is a genuine compliment, and I'm getting better at that. Well, because but, I feel like I have a better read on people, and I'm less unhappy. But again, maybe this is my background, and maybe this makes me naive. But I can just take the compliment, even if it's followed with, you know, oh, but here's the thing I want you to do for me. I don't tie those two together. I just take the compliment. And if you ask me to do something and I don't want to do it or I can't do it or I don't have time to do it, I'll just tell you no. But again, thanks for the compliment. Those two are very closely tied together to you. To the point where when I compliment you and there is nothing in the background that I'm trying to get you to do, you, you, can't, you can't handle the compliment. You can't accept the yeah. compliment. It, they agitate you sometimes. Yeah. So how do you feel about, again, in the context of... When you're headed into the pit, when there's emotional relapse coming, how do you feel about the choice of the word unworthy? Mm. I feel like that's the word that you've shared with me. 
unworthy, but also like undeserving and could also tie in with that. Like I don't deserve it. You mean like the compliment when I'm feeling bad? The compliment or <coughs> just any kind of positivity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we've talked about childhood, but I don't think, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the very massive impact that living with alcoholism has had on this topic for you and that it has on anyone who lives with an alcoholic. I mean, living with an alcoholic breaks people. And we alcoholics don't realize that. We think, you know, I'm the one that have the, has this huge mountain to climb. I've got to get over my addiction. I have to fix my brain chemistry. I have to change my subconscious mind. I have to get my brain back to homeostasis. I've got to do this nutrition work. I've got to get over this huge hump. And all of that's true. Mm -hmm. But we give no credit to how much our alcoholism just flat out breaks the people that we live with. Your confidence is eroded. Um, you know, many people who get into relationships with alcoholics have re come to that from relationships with alcoholic parents. There's a, you know, I, I really got into researching that at one point. And what I found was there are really two main reasons why the children of alcoholics marry alcoholics. One is there's a zillion alcoholics out there, so your odds are pretty good. You you can't throw a rock without hitting one of us. So it's not like alcoholism is this rare disease that we make it out to be. Um, but the other reason is you often don't see the red flags that someone who has not experienced alcoholism does. So if I fly off the handle and I'm moody and I say nasty things early in our relationship, you don't enjoy that. You hate it, in fact, but it doesn't, it's not enough to go, whoa, I'm out because mm -hmm. you've seen that your whole life. Yeah. Even with my parents getting divorced when I was like two or two and a half because of alcohol, it still did not register. I mean, I saw my sister have abusive first husband um, that abused alcohol and drugs and her. And, you know, we just took her in whenever she needed. And then we saw, you know. And I saw that with my dad when he would be around. Right. So my red flags were nothing yeah. early on. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, in a lot of comparison, uh, your good totally outweighed. And I was like, there's no way that, you know, he's just immature that he's going to develop this so disease. You, so you come into this relationship with your eventual spouse who eventually turns into an alcoholic and you're already you know, doubtful. You're, you've already got some negativity. You're already feeling unworthy. You've already experienced some things that no human should really have to experience. And then your confidence gets further eroded by the gaslighting, the denials, the lies, the nasty, vile statements that you experience from your very own alcoholic that you're now in relationship with. I mean, so you start doubtful and it gets further eroded. My question is, how do you ever come back from that? I mean, that is so much negativity. And the idea that we just expect the spouses to just bounce back and be okay is, I, 
I mean, I think that's ridiculous. Once you start to dig in and really study it, you know, that's like telling someone with third degree burns to slap on some sunscreen and get back out on the beach. Well, like it's, I, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I think that you made a really valid point that in sobriety for the alcoholic, that first bit, you know, they're like, it's, it's still a very selfish disease. They're like, oh, it's all about me and my drinking. And, and basically you're saying, but whatever you're going through isn't nearly as bad. So therefore your stuff should be really easy to do. And that I think kind of ties into the lack of my ability to take compliments. Cause I feel like the things that I have excelled at are things that anybody could do if they put their mind to it. So it feels like when I take a compliment, it almost feels like I'm bragging about myself. And I think with that lack of self-esteem and lack of self-confidence that has been eroded throughout my life, you know, I think that that's why it's really hard to take the compliment. Because I also, I don't want to seem like I'm bragging or I'm, you know, boasting about my self-importance and my great abilities. Like, that's what's really hard to take a compliment and then when you have your alcoholic trying to be sober, you get things like, you have no idea how fucking hard this is. You haven't tried to do anything this hard ever. I, you know, so you get it thrown back in your face. You feel like, geez, I've accomplished nothing. I can't possibly imagine what this person is going through trying to reconcile the emotion and the physical craving and the habitualness of their routine and so it feels like whatever I should be doing to get healthy should be just supporting you and that what I have to overcome the emotional damage that happened that's a that's a cakewalk what you're doing the alcoholic what you're doing is so much harder and I'm here to say that there is a very acute, you know, it lasts a year plus, but I'm still going to use the word acute, period, where the alcoholic, yes, it has to be all hands on deck as far as your own emotional, cognitive, you know, all of your effort has to be on sobriety. And it remains very selfish, and we've talked about that lots of times. But there is a very chronic but equally devastating impact on the loved one from, you know, the standpoint of self-confidence, just doubt. I mean, I think I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you just said, but how sad it is that a compliment, <clears throat> a compliment feels like bragging to you. And and we wouldn't be talking about this if I thought you were unique in this area I mean that that if that was the case then this would be something that you would deal with in therapy privately I think a lot of the spouses of alcoholics again going back to childhood issues and then on up through all the trauma that you face as an adult in one of these relationships the concept that you can't accept an, a compliment because it feels like bragging that's super super sad 
Yeah. Well, it feels like if I didn't deny the compliment or if I didn't downplay the compliment, that would feel like I'm just bragging and being boastful. And I don't know if that's part of my religious upbringing, too. I mean, I know both sides of it is, like, you know, be generous, and but then also, you know, like, bo- don't be too prideful, but then on the same token, you should be, you know, excited about the go- gifts that God gave you. So it's this dichotomy that you're just struggling with, and then you pour alcohol into the mix, and you're like, you have no idea how much I need this drink because I've had a stressful day. You just can't possibly understand what it's like to be me. Like, these are things that you've said. I have so much work to do. Like, there's nothing, you know, it just, and that says to me, there's nothing that I'm doing that's equal. If if there's anyone in this relationship that needs to worry about being too prideful, it's me. You know, my confidence borders on... And and some would say crosses the line into cockiness and arrogance. You're not even close. I've never seen you be close. You've never had enough confidence in your own ability and, you know, some kind of dangerous level of pride. Um, and again, the, the point of this is not at all meant to beat you down. It's to talk about something that I think people can really relate to. And so, you know, it, if, if you are in a situation where you don't take compliments well, um, I, I just would urge you, you, my wife, Sherry, and you, the listener, to, you know, give yourself a bunch of grace and recognize that that is the result of a huge chunk, maybe a whole lifetime of gaslighting and being... Um, you know, living in this negative space where you're told you're not good enough or you feel you're not good enough because things that are taking place around you. I think that's a huge, important distinction to make. A lot of times the children of alcoholics are never told they're not good enough. They just feel it. their parents keep fighting and there's nothing they as children can do to make that stop. So they assume it's their fault. And so if you've had a lifetime of being beaten down in that way and feeling... Like you're not enough feeling again, back to the word that I chose, unworthy. Getting out of that is huge. And a big, you know, sign that that's where you are is this inability to accept compliments. I'm sorry that this got emotional. It's okay. I mean, I, and you know, that's why like, I feel like I wanted our family and our marriage to be different. Not that I was beaten down. Not that I wasn't told I wasn't good enough. There just wasn't a whole lot of maybe extra energy to exert into making me, you know, like push me a little bit or guide me a little bit. I mean, I had to do like all the college thing, even though, again, my mom worked at any university. This is not me dumping on her. I had to do it all myself. She was going through a lot at that time, and she didn't have yeah, any extra bandwidth for you. Exactly. So, like, even just in college and preparation, and I mean, I, 
you know, our kids are lucky. They do their SATs right at their school during a school day and then they get out the rest of the day like ours was on a saturday and i had to drive a half an hour and go do the sat i had to and you had to remember your number two pencil because they would not give you one you had to bring your own number two you know, pencil i remember i that. had to do that all myself and so it would just you know and i know that there are a lot of people that do this even you know with and it doesn't like defeat them i know that that sounds like i'm using an excuse but just that, uh, you know, you just don't feel like you're important. And that's, that's really sad because I, there's nobody in this world that's more important to me than you are. And I know that that's hard for you to hear and it's really difficult for you to absorb. And I know that a lot of the reasons why that's difficult are for the way I treated you for all those years. So I know that it's, we, we blame the alcohol. We both do a good job of that. But I can't help but feel guilty. And, you know, I'm like, as, as is said a lot, you know, yeah, you can blame the alcohol, but that's still the same face on the person that was the alcoholic. So it's hard to separate those two completely. So I wouldn't blame you if you held, you know, a lot of resentment toward me for my participation in making you feel unworthy. But I don't. And that, I mean, that's been part of the first part of the journey, I think, in my recovery was letting go of those resentments and know that those behaviors were, were guided by alcohol. I mean, I know that my behavior on our kids, as much as I love them, I still snap. And I know some of that is because of stress and the alcohol that was playing a part. And so I think that talking about it and working through it has released that resentment. Now it's just working on the confidence and understanding that my gifts are different than everybody else's, perhaps. Perhaps to me, they might seem a little, what I call it the other day, a little domestic. But it's what, it's what I have. Well. And it's what I enjoy. And it's what I like. So I shouldn't downplay those yeah and not only okay so so because there has been a negative stereotype associated with some of the things that you're really really good at you struggle to see them as valuable but what i see is not only are you good at those things there are areas where you're the best person ever in my life in those areas it i mean again you you graduated from culinary school. You don't use recipes. We've kind of hinted to some of this. Some of the things that you prepare are unbelievable. The way you've nurtured my children, you know, in the face of my alcoholism and my denial and my not realizing how much, you know, trauma I was causing them, that's just unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, I could go on and on forever with accolades about you, but there are there are a number of areas where I look at you and whatever the category is we're talking about, you're best in class of anyone ever in my life. And I know, I, I know that's cringeworthy for you even to hear me, hear me say that now. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I just, in, in kind of conclusion here, I have to say that it, for anyone who's listening, if you doubt the assertion that you and I make, Sherry, 
that self-esteem is the single most important component to individual recovery, relationship recovery too, but but most importantly, individual recovery of both the alcoholic and the loved one, then if you doubt that self-esteem is the most important component, then you need to rewind to the beginning and listen again. Because there's there's just no doubt in my mind of the importance of self-esteem. And so I know that's a, a focus, something that you and I both continue to focus on. And uh, we just got to keep keep trudging, keep going. And I know it's hard to be in a relationship and um, be in a relationship where there is recovery or no recovery and then you're still feeling drugged down by your partner. But don't let them gaslight you acting like you are, it's going to be real easy for you to get over because I quit drinking or yeah. I'm working on quitting drinking. Well, like it wasn't that bad. It yeah. It really wasn't that bad. Yeah, because that is nothing but blow bullshit. blow it out of proportion. It wasn't that bad. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was a chronic. <laughs> How you know you were drunk? Yeah, it was a chronic state of high alert. It was, you know, a lot of emotional and I'm sure physical abuse that happened and you were sober for it all. Yeah. You know, so don't let them manipulate, gaslight, blow smoke. You deserve it. Yeah. Because it took me a while to figure it out. If you're feeling unworthy, you know, let us be the loudest and proudest to say you are worthy of this kind of recovery that we're talking about and the self-esteem building. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.